0: Yeah, how about that, huh? It's kind of useful being
1: invisible. There are moments when you (laughs) hear something and you know that's the million dollar idea. I heard his pitch and it pushed every single one of my buttons as far as what I wanted to do artistically, what I wanted to say. Here's a show that's about... What it means to see another human being, but is actually a broad comedy. But I get to write pop music, but you it's not a John Hughes thing.
0: Like and it's I'm set tougher. in the eighties. Dickwads are going to suffer. That's it, Grip. This is how we beat Chetnik at his own game. We just use your invisibility to make me popular, and then once we find a cure for you, I'll just bring you up to my level. You being invisible isn't a disaster. It's not even a problem. It's the solution.
2: Oh my god. Oh, my God. We would like to welcome you to our limited series on Invisible Musical. Invisible is a new musical created by David Hollingsworth and David Orris. I had the fortune of seeing a staged reading in Burbank a few months back and formed a friendship with these two lovely gentlemen, but I just had to get to know them better and their process of getting this to the stage. We're going to be doing a series of episodes, talking with them as well as some of the cast members and the creative team. And today we're going to jump off and see where this musical came from. So, I'd like to introduce the authors, David Hollingsworth, who wrote the book, and David Orris, who wrote the music and the lyric. And i talk to them a little bit about where this all came from. So, why don't we start with the two of you, how you met, and the history of your partnership together?
3: Sure thing. So, we we actually met. Um, uh, gosh, was it? Is it really? Is it 2011 at that point? <laughs> it's insane yeah. to think how that that's that's actually been like a full five plus years now. Um, but we, uh, I had just moved down to Los Angeles from the Bay Area, and uh, I knew that I had wanted to get into um, into writing musical theater. So we actually both uh, joined up at a, 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 a musical writing workshop in North Hollywood. Uh, it was then called New Music, or no, it was then it was uh, the Academy for New Musical Theater and took a workshop there. And um, while we were there, we we I, we hadn't actually had much chance to work with one another. It was, it was sort of a thing where you kind of got paired off with a bunch of, um, you know, book writers and lyricists and composers. And uh, we, we'd kind of been noticing each other from the periphery. But what really got us to eventually work together is we had an assignment where essentially all the book writers just had to pitch a show kind of out of nothing. Um, And uh, the, one of the constraints of the assignment was that it had to be based out of something from the public domain. And uh, so I kind of just searched through a series of uh, lists of what's in the public domain. And I noticed that all of HG Wells works are in the public domain and uh, in particular, the invisible man. So I, uh, I formulated this pitch based on *The Invisible Man*. Pitched it, and then after that, Oris sent me this very, very long, very as I would learn, characteristically Orisian <laughs> email, um, <Hey>. just explaining, <laughs> just explaining how much he loved the show, and we got to talking, and then that's really where we got to know each other. Was 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 really only after that moment.
2: I think we need to trademark Orisian. <laughs> <laughs> that is no, a I, very apt description of his email <laughs> screw you guys now I'm,
3: I'm i'm wondering if oris has a better better ring to it
1: <laughs> yeah so Dave, david got up and gave that pitch and my head kind of exploded but as he said we we had kind of noticed each other in the workshop i think one of the things kind of the main thing they did in this workshop it's it's what the bmi workshop does the layman angle style i don't know if you're familiar with that but they basically give you a thing Every week. And and actually, John Sparks, who was like the founder of this organization, actually used to lead the Layman Engel workshop uh, in New York. Anyway, they would give us like a a play, like an existing play, and give us a section of it to musicalize. So there was one, what was the one you did that was like the mafioso? uh, That
3: that one was, uh, we had to come up with a, it was like literally like a three or four page. Um, adaptation of an Aesop fable, um, That's and I uh, uh, I chose. Uh, oh, now I'm now I'm forgetting the specific names, but the the fable of essentially the guy who pulls the thorn out of the lion's paw, and the lion comes to save him afterward. I don't know why I be, I, I decided that this would be fun if the uh, the lion were like a uh, kind of old timey prohibition era gangster. Um, but then I also did this weird thing where they all had this very weird diction, like the gangster kind of kept like meandering around with his words of like, "Thank you very much." This is now where we are in the place where we are in currently, which is now the woods and that kind of thing. And um, the the main character w- uh, just didn't know the actual definitions of any words that he would use, so it was all kind of malapropisms, but also just straight up bizarre things. So I had a lot of fun writing that, and um, I think uh, I think Oris. I think you liked that one. I don't know. I was particularly proud of that one. I,
1: I I liked that one a lot. I liked a lot of things David did. That one that one stood out. And at the time, I'd, I don't even know if you'll remember this, but you had told me you liked a couple of the things I did, which were the... Yeah.
3: Well, there was one that was based off of Rabbit Hole, I think. Um, yeah. And uh, it was this song by the father character in it. Um, and it was just heart-wrenching. <laughs> and I remember being immediately taken by that.
1: And the and then there was the other one from Little Dog Laughed, where I made Randy Giaia, who did our who did our demos. He sang Griff on our demos. If you listen to our demos for Invisible, I made Randy Giaia sing like a C in full voice. Um, yes, that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, uh,
3: yeah that um, one. That one also really, really hit me.
1: So there were this, there were there was this sort of mutual admiration society going on when he gave when he got up and gave the pitch though for Invisible there there are these moments and i don't mean to sound grandiose but i'm going to sound grandiose for a minute cuz it's really not about me but there's there are moments when you <laughs> hear something and you know that's the million dollar idea that is 100 like i i heard his pitch and it just every it ticked off it pushed every single one of my buttons as far as what I wanted to do artistically, what I wanted to say. Here's a show that's about what it means to see another human being, but is actually a broad comedy. But I get to write pop music. But it's got a John Hughes thing, and it's set in the '80s, and I get to have a sardonic, kind of bitchy heroine, female character who is actually actually has a heart of gold. Like it, it was every single thing, and yeah, so. I bum-rushed him and said, you must let me do this with you.
0: One giant leap from the bottom rung To the top of the heap They used to make us run Now with one small step We will finally stand in the sun
2: For people who live under a rock, can you kind of dumb down the story of The Invisible Man and how you saw that as something that would be appropriate to set in a high school?
3: Yeah. Well, actually, what, what immediately kind of drew me to The Invisible Man is that it's sort of this, when you when you kind of boil it down to its essence, or at least think about it from a modern context, it's sort of a story of nerd rage, of um, that kind of like, uh, I don't know, there, there's, a, there's a specific sort of uh, anger that, uh, that, uh, that I think think exists in the zeitgeist of nerddom of like, well, you've wronged me. And I have like all of these rational reasons why you shouldn't have done that. And, uh, in the invisible man, uh, it's basically this guy who just moves to a remote, uh, English village, like fishing village, um, having accidentally turned himself invisible. And like, he's, he's trying to, uh, uh he's, he's basically kind of studying himself. And then, uh, he enlists the help of a local, tough or who's, who's sort of this, 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 this kind of creep. <laughs> um, and then the creep ends up betraying him. So he decides to go on a reign of terror throughout the entire village of 45 people. And then eventually I think a bunch of people are shot or I don't know. It, 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 it kind of ends in a, in a, it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's actually, it's a, it's a really dry read, but it's, uh, I, I, I kind of tuned into the, uh, the the sense of being wronged uh, that uh, that the main character uh, goes through through and and in that way I felt like there was a very similar thread throughout a lot of these films in the 80s where we kind of had uh, we we'd kind of um, risen nerds up to this magical status like uh, that they have like some sort of supernatural power with the kind of science that they can do like in weird science and zapped and zapped he's literally just a superhero but he uses it to grow a bunch of weed and, like, <laughs> and shit people's <laughs> skirts off. Um, but, but and look, Scott now. And look, oh, boy. <laughs> and, um, but, uh... But beyond beyond that there's also a i think a a pretty explicit undertone of revenge throughout all of those things a lot of the a lot of times the nerds who are given this weird boon use it to sort of smack down the people who had been oppressing them the whole time um and and it kind of like carrie which is why we kind of even point to carrie a little bit in the um in the the show so uh yeah i felt like i felt like those two uh kind of the that that story really meshed well with this kind of genre that I had, I had kind of picked up on and, and, and appreciated. And uh, I I guess in general, I, I tend to be really as a person, really focused on genre and really fascinated by it. And I felt like this story, this very dry proto science fiction story kind of already had tapped into into that genre that wouldn't become relevant for another 70 years. And that's where I decided this this would work really well in an 80s high school.
2: Um, you mentioned Carrie, and you mentioned the formerly great Scott Baio. Were <laughs> there any other... Talk about some of your other movie inspirations. And David Orris, if you could chime in with some of your musical inspirations from that time period that got you thinking about the 80s as an ideal setting for this...
3: Well, yeah, I, a lot of, a lot of movies really, uh, are, are either explicitly referenced or, or really shaped a lot of what goes on in the, in the movie or in the, in the show rather, uh, even stuff just like Teen Wolf, again, weird, weird science is a big draw, sort of the whole, uh, uh, oeuvre of John Hughes and the, the kind of like landscape of, um, of uh of high schools that he he depicted even uh we had a character for for a long time whose name uh he was the principal called principal sherman which was itself a reference to the fictional setting of Shermer, illinois that all of the john hughes movies are supposed to be put in i try to put in a bunch of stuff a, a bunch of little easter eggs like that that hopefully people people pick up on but but yeah like uh yeah weird science zapped teen wolf um not not necessarily going into like teen witch but, like, but, 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 yeah, stuff in that kind of, in that kind of, uh, oh, and of course, like Revenge of the Nerds, just general explicit nerd revenge. Yeah, that kind of thing.
1: And, and did you say The Breakfast Club, Some Kind of Wonderful, also that, that stuff's all there. Yeah, there
3: yeah, yeah.
2: Some Kind of Wonderful is an underrated John Hughes movie totally in my. I totally
1: agree. I
0: like agree. it as an
1: an overcorrection of Pretty and Pink. That's my
2: favorite Correct. part. <laughs>
1: I, I kind of see Hemlock as the Mary Stuart Masterson character a little bit.
3: Yeah, Hemlock has a lot of different characters and and um, and just actually a lot of people from my life just sort of poured into her. So yeah, she's yes. she's she's a real receptacle for a lot.
2: And what about music?
1: I thought about music in terms of character. That was one of the things that was really fun for me. I, I am not as um, genre-driven in my creativity as David Hollingsworth is, but. For this show i was and it was actually a really fun thing to do i think the fir- very first thing i heard um for chetwick the bully jock uh was sort of the uh bombastic not just hair metal but there's like a vocal thing that happened in the 80s specifically from the late 70s and, and from classic rock and when it turned to in the 80s so like from the purity of something like Freddie Mercury at that kind of amazing kind of vocal wail and it's sort of digression into things like Guns N Roses and Warrant and that kind of ah! that kind of you know I'm not going to scream really loud and hurt your listeners but that kind of wail that bombastic self involved thing that I thought was really really fun so I put a lot of that kind of musically into, like, the bully side of things, that sort of hard rock. And then thinking about the twins, um, I immediately, like, heard a lot of Go-Go's Madonna. There are very specific nods throughout, and and I want people to catch those, but really it's more of a vibe, an overall pastiche vibe. And, uh, and we've been playing with it throughout, so, like, we just added in this whole, like, to the top of Act 2 and this new revision we've added in, like, Sort of a Michael Jackson musical montage kind of (laughs) moment, complete with the thriller type werewolf howling and um, Billie Jean dancing. I don't know. I lost my mind a little bit, but uh, so so in the best way though. (laughs) Um, and then and then like, there's like the you know our nerds are sort of like the main part of the story, and so I thought a lot about like erasure and Depeche Mode and New Order and things like that. Um, and that's kind of got a real heart. Um, that's, a, that's a real, I would say, melodic musical touchstone for the heart of the show or is that kind of genre.
0: So mean and stark Cause me I'm just that spooky girl That girl in the shadows That weird girl in black Who's always standing in the dark I just want to say it out loud I just need to say what's true I'm always lost in the crowd But for seven years
2: Okay, so you have the idea, you have your inspirations, and now the two of you get together and decide to write the script and compose some music. So where did you, where was your jumping off point?
1: I well, kind of uh, dragged him off into a cafe <laughs> 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 almost immediately. We were still in the year one workshop. We there, the end of the year one workshop, you do a 15-minute musical mm-hmm. um, and before you sort of graduate. Before we even did that, I had him in a coffee shop in Westwood. um outlining outlining invisible i was like yeah yeah whatever with this 15 minute musical this is the thing um we loved the 15 minute musical and we poured ourselves into it but yeah even like nine months before we decided let's go ahead and do the next workshop just to give ourselves some deadlines we had already been working at it for a good spell
3: yeah uh we actually we 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 used a lot of the, the kind of the a mt layman angle um, style of uh, we, we outlined and basically wrote the entire show as a play before adding a single note. I mean, or- Oris, you, you of course were off on the side, uh, kind of pouring your heart into, into songs already, but before we committed to any, <laughs> any specific, like, this is, this is where this is going to be like that. That's that we, we had to kind of justify it. Story-wise, and actually, we, we did something that even um uh, we heard frequently from Stephen Schwartz um at the uh, the uh, ASCAP um kind of musical theater uh, uh competition workshops I guess you would call those work yeah um, workshops we go every year we go over there because they're they're fascinating and you learn absolutely so much about like what works and what it's it's i can't if you're if you're in la and you can figure out a way to get to it it's it's fantastic um but uh one of the one of the approaches that he recommends and this is something that we did and something that i'm going to continue to do with every show that i write is um he recommends that you storyboard it uh via note cards where you just write out everything that happens as if it were a headline in a newspaper you know this character talks to this character they confront each other about this and the other character leaves and you just sort of write all those and uh, put them up on a wall and kind of take a look like just seeing the story from a bird's eye view how often is your main character on stage what are where does it seem like plot point like big important plot points are they too far apart are they too close together are they too crammed in one spot and then in that you can also take a look at that and say well that looks like probably that demands a song this moment here is going to be a really moment of, of heightened emotion so we probably need a song right here and that's that's essentially what we did and um we kind of we kind of even i think charted it out a couple times mm-hmm. i think we still have the old outlines where it's essentially like that but on like an excel spreadsheet <laughs> of, oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, saying where we are physically in the show, where the song is coming up and then uh, and kind of kind of looked at it that way. And then I'd say that that probably took, I don't know, maybe six months.
1: Yeah, something like that.
3: And then um, then we entered the workshop to to get it going and kind of worked on it from there. We uh, wrote the first act, wrote the second act, added songs, and that's that's kind of how it went on.
1: One of the things Stephen Short said that we've really stuck to that really helped me think about the structure of the show too is, you know, he, he used Wicked. I'm a huge Wicked fan, so I I talked a lot about Wicked as we thought about structure just because I've seen it like 30 times. No shame. And he would say, you know, you've in the case of Wicked, this is a story about two... This is a story about a friendship. This is a story about these two women. And if you would have a note card... That's over here, and it's about Bach. And you've got a note card over here, and it's about Fierro. And if you get a note card over here, and it's about Madame Morrible, you've got three note cards that are not about the two women, and that's probably too many. So if you get two, if you get too far away from your main characters, probably three note cards is your max. I thought that was really useful. So we've kind of stuck to that when we were looking at our story. Our you know our main characters are Griff Kemper and Hemlock. And if we kind of veered too far away from the three of them, then something's up.
2: I love Stephen Schwartz, too, but that's really interesting. I like the storyboard idea. Okay, so now you have your first draft. Do you look at your first draft and think, let's just, um, do." You, do you need to hear it or do you need to see it before you can write another one? Or do you sit down, read the first draft and say, all right, let's try this again?
3: Well the, the culmination of that um that first workshop that we did just with invisible was we did have a a staged reading um, and I feel like I don't personally I feel like I do need to see it and hear it and and kind of see car- people at least even if not in full costume and everything or uh, uh, uh or even if like they're just behind a uh, a music stand um kind of need to see characters live for a little while before I can understand purely what's working and what's not um and of course it always helps having it in front of an audience even if it's an only an audience of like you know 25 to 50 That's so um yeah so my my next step in the process is i i do need to hear it before i'm maybe comfortable more so to figure out what's not working than to f- to kind of confirm what is uh before i can uh, i can move on to a, to another draft
1: I, I tend to agree with that more or less. I'm a little hysterical when it comes to the readings because I am. I not to keep talking about Stephen Schwartz, but he says the same thing. He says all the way up to he won't even go to his own opening night because he and I quote, "I'm too hysterical," is what he says. <laughs> and and I'm kind of like that. And I I'm a little out of body. I I uh, I had a friend tell me that during the first reading that I'm not, I was like. Like quietly mouthing the words to all the songs as they were happening, and I was mortified that I I had no awareness of that. It's it's like, great. You
3: like you even kind of like conduct a little bit. It's it's really adorable. <laughs> oh
1: God, they just yeah they need to not allow me at those things. So it's useful, but it's more useful to me later. I always make sure when possible when it's not when it's a non union reading or we're at a rehearsal and it's allowed. Um, Within the bounds of what is allowed, I always make sure I have video of the process because the video is what is more useful to me to go back later and obsess over when I'm calmer. Because the first time you're hearing the song and the stage, I'm just like, if, if the cast is nervous, I'm 20 times more nervous. So,
2: Obviously, the Invisible Man is one thing. So talk a little bit about the plot of this actual musical and then I want to dig into the characters a little bit. Sure.
3: So, so the, uh, the premise of this is, it is, it is kind of a loose draping of the HG Wells plot over a, eighties nerd, um, sci-fi comedy. Uh, but, uh, the premise is that, uh, sort of these, these two, uh, kind of rambunctious nerds have been trying to use science to win themselves popularity for the last, I don't know how many years of, of their lives. And, um, they have a friend, Hemlock, who's this um, uh, very sarcastic goth who's been friends with them for, for, for quite a while. Um, but these two nerds, Griff and Kemper, we open the, the show with them trying their latest, most like ambitious idea to win themselves popularity and and go out with the popular girls to the prom. Yet, and it falls apart right in front of them. Um, and, and Griff is kind of, uh, he's, he's kind of lulled into this, uh, depression of like, well, what, like everything I've tried has failed. Like, what, what do I do? When the idea gets in his head that, um, if he really wants to be popular and get the, uh, the popular girls to go out with him, what he should do is just make himself like the popular jock bully, Chetwick. And he figures out, well, we could just kind of emulate everything that he does using science. And, uh, and basically just turn ourselves into these big galoots. Um, and uh, so, so he develops this plan to do so. However, in the execution, something goes wrong and Griff turns invisible. Immediate their their first reaction is like, this is awesome. And then they realize, oh wait, no, we actually have to like be living people and and you know <laughs> deal with society. Um, and we can't just be X-Men all the time. So uh so they kind of have to figure out like, well, what are we practically gonna do now that I'm now invisible? And uh in the middle of that, Kemper gets accosted by Chetwick, the uh the the bully king, and they realize and and Griff, while invisible, kind of uses that. To save Kemper from Chetwick, and simultaneously makes it look like Kemper actually beat Chetwick up. So every it kind of like puts the school on its head, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, this Kemper's a badass! Like this guy's amazing." So he becomes actually very popular, and they they keep they keep it going. They kind of keep escalating. Like uh, the Invisible Griff just keeps helping him like be good at sports and just pull off all these feats at school and, and and his star just continues to rise and they figure they'll keep doing this and that um, that uh, Griff will just eventually kind of turn himself back uh, to, to being visible after they've kind of reached a certain level of popularity with Kemper and then Kemper will just kind of pick Griff back up with him. But as they've kind of come to that conclusion as, as Kemper keeps getting more and more popular it kind of goes to his head more and more and uh, eventually Kemper betrays Griff which leads Griff to uh, go on a reign of terror on the school. And then, um, I don't know. I don't know if I even want to, like, spoil the ending, but it all, it all leads to a showdown at the prom, which, uh, which all good 80s anythings should do.
0: I can't be the super villain. This just isn't me. I've got to go and stop this. I've got to make Kemper really see I've got to get to the prom I can't wear this stiff tuxedo Shut up! Your bow tie is blue Not just my eyes. But my tuxedo t-shirt's awesome Just shut up and do what we tell you We've gotta get to the prom Griff's become a fool Tonight's my first school dance. Yes, something this lame might numb the pain.
2: I've gotta get to the prom. You're talking about the characters Griff and Kemper and Chetwick and Emlock. What were the inspirations for these characters? Because even though they're kind of archetypes in high school, all of them have a little bit of an edge. So, did you have specific inspiration for creating these characters, or are they complete fabrications of your own mind?
3: Well, There's definitely a lot of, um, yeah, inspiration. Like, Griff is when I am in a certain way. <laughs> like, Griff, the, the kind of excitability and the over-analysis of things, that kind of comes from me. Um, but he's, he's also kind of, like, colored by a lot of the kind of... Um, there's 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 I guess a, a stock kind of benign nerd character throughout the 70s and 80s who's just very like very happy to be a nerd and very ambitious and has a lot of ideas but who um doesn't really want to um is not is not unhappy with the fact that he is a nerd he kind of just wants it, to use it to to better the world a little bit and that's kind of that's kind of great griff has a very like scientifically twinged approach to everything that he does um and uh, I even thought a, bit, a little bit about um Oh gosh! oh who's the caroten in revenge of the nerds uh the main the main one the one who's not um David. I guess David thank you David Carradine. Mm-hmm. perfect and then um Kemper I kind of wanted to uh specifically uh the model for him was kind of explicitly um Anthony Michael Hall in weird science, but also just that kind of um really raunchy nerd, which is also a thing of of the dude who really wants to get laid, but like has absolutely no idea what would make someone want to be attracted to them. Like just thinks (laughs) that the, like that sex is just sort of this amazing, like, you know, mass that, uh, that kind of gravitationally pulls everything into it. And that by just being disgusting, that will somehow make people attracted to them. Um, (laughs) so that's where a lot of, and I, there's probably more, of myself and Kemper than I want to admit also. Um, And then, and um, uh, Hemlock is, is kind of based off of actually a lot of, a lot of uh, women from my life. Um, uh, But uh, also that kind of like, I mean, I, 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 feel even kind of lame saying it, but, but there's sort of like a, a dark manic pixie dream girl, stereo like it's it's strange to even think of it calling it a trope because it's something that sort of has existed a lot in my real life of um of just these girls who are just into awesome stuff and they're dark and they're depressed and they'll teach you about Bauhaus and they'll teach you about like like they'll be the first person to tell you about the Smiths when you're when you're young but they're they also just seem like by the fact that they're like sad all the time like you're like man you must really know what's up like, and and so I, I have I have a real attraction to that that kind of type and um, uh, hemlock is sort of my my expression of, of that a little bit but she's she's also based off of a lot of uh you know a lot of the uh, characters of that type in in pop culture a lot of um uh, yeah John Hughes has has a lot of that going on uh, actually uh Lizzie Kaplan's character in mean girls even was was a little bit something I was thinking that's that's kind of outside of necessarily the timeframe that we're talking about, but I think fits in with that culture a lot. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then uh, Chetwick, of course, is just based off of like bullies in real life and fiction of just like, how is it that people like this dude? Uh, How is it that like this person has so money, so much money. And I guess nowadays, how did this, how is it that so many people like this dude that they elected him president? Like there's a lot of that kind of uh, like, we all kind of deal with that kind of person um, or at least, I don't know. I I feel like I do. And um, uh, so that's, that's where a lot of Chetwick kind of, kind of comes in. And um, of course, you know, like, like Biff from back to the future, that, that kind of thing too.
2: And David Orris, where are we, um, did you collaborate on creating these characters or your insight into them during the whole process?
1: I was a I was a butt in ski during the whole process. I mean the, the the book writer's process is to you know kind of let him kind of build the structure in the world. But yeah, I was meeting with him every week and putting my two cents in and you know, as I think he mentioned, it was it was me, her turn chetwick gay. So if you liked that, you're welcome. If you didn't, I'm sorry. And I think my my real input would be on the emotional level. So David, so Hollingsworth is looking at these characters structurally and what they have to do and what they have to say and how they get from here to there. So we look at Griffin Kemper and Griff is sort of this status driven nerd and Kemper is sort of the sex driven nerd. Um, And then my job is to, you know, as, as the composer and the lyricist to take what's happening uh, in the, in the, in the entirety of the show, but specifically in the song moments, what is what is the emotional truth? And in musicals, as you know, obviously, what is the emotional truth that is obvious that that is often unspoken, but in a musical, we're going to say it. And uh, we're you know, so it that that was kind of the fun of it too, is to, you know, to say right out loud. I mean, when when you have a, a character like Kemper, like I get to take what David has sort of been building and then run wild with it because it's. <laughs> You know, in songs like "If I Were Invisible," which is the a song in the second act where he kind of stands there and declares all the totally unuseful things he would do with his invisibility, all the all the pervy things he would do with his invis- invisibility. That that was that's a really fun challenge. Um, so David creates it, and then I kind of run away with it.
2: Now, how does that work when um, you know the book is finished? You guys are starting to write music and you're starting to collaborate. Do you sit down just the two of you and kind of go through it step by step and say, "Oh, here's the song that I wrote for this moment"? Or Hollingsworth, when you have a script, do you say, "Oh, I really need a song here at this moment"?
3: It's actually it's a little little column A, little column B. I think for the most part, it's it's we as, as even as we're we're building the outline and and talking about the show. Um, and, uh, and saying that looks like a, a song moment right there. We, we like some stuff kind of gets rewritten around to, um, to, or, or at least in that moment to, to, I guess, insert a song. Um, but, uh, for the, for the most part, what we actually, are, our process is largely, we think that this moment requires a song let's sit and and just talk about what that song is going to be, what, where the character is going to be at the beginning of it, where they're going to be at the end. Um, and then our personal style was then usually, um, we would, we would again sit in a cafe somewhere on the West side and I would just talk for 45 minutes of just complete stream of consciousness, what that character is going through in that moment and what they'd be feeling and like why, what would be running through their head that would, uh, necessarily need to come out as a song. Um,
1: but, uh, so but I'd have pages and pages of Hollingsworth ease and, you know, like <laughs> ten, 10 pages of that brain. And then I get to like scrunch that down into like four stanzas. Yeah. But
3: I think I think it, we, for the most part, and maybe it's just because of the comfort we have working together. But we rarely had a moment where one of us thought a song should belong somewhere and the other disagreed. We had moments where one of us said, I think a song would go here and the other one was kinda like, Oh, okay, I, I hadn't thought of that about that. We've never uh yeah, disagreed about whether or not a song should exist. Yeah. Um so and I I don't know if that's just yeah, the benefit of, of kinda having someone on your collaborative team is really on the same page with you for the most part, or if that's just how how, you know, the kind of the natural rhythms of musicals end up sort of forming. But uh yeah.
1: Hollingsworth will will hate this statement, I think, but we're both Geminis. (laughs) Um,
2: It sounds like you guys work so well together, um, especially for it being your first collaboration together. Do you feel like your relationship is strong enough where you could say to each other, I just don't think this moment works. I just don't think this song works or is it more walking on eggshells?
3: (sighs) No, I think we've actually, we've, we've had a lot of that. Well, I think any, any healthy relationship has like, isn't free of conflict, but I think um, in general, we actually, we've, we've had to several times come up to and say, "I, I don't think this thing is working. I think we need to change course. I mean, it's, you know, it's not easy, but we, uh, I think we actually communicate pretty well enough to, to to make that come through.
1: Yeah. No, we've had some real come to Jesus moments. You're you know, in the course of, in the course of five years, you're going to, I mean, yeah. if you really care about what you're doing and you're treating it almost like a second job, which is how it often yeah. is, I'll go to my 40, 50 hour a week job. And then this is my other 50 hour a week job, quite literally. Mm-hmm. And you care that much and you're pouring that much of yourself into it. It's going to happen where you're going to diverge on whatever it is you're thinking or doing and, and but the great thing about david and i i think is that w- yeah it's, we have open lines of communication and even when it's sucked or it's been difficult there's never been i i, f- I feel like there's a there's a real equality in our relationship like it's I agree. you know we we have we both have great respect for each other and i i really you know it turns out i i liked david hollingsworth's writing and i liked his idea for invisible. And thank God when we sat down together, he turned out to be a great human being. So,
3: yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you're not a piece of garbage. That would have been real difficult.
2: (laughs) That's so sweet.
3: (laughs) I know, right? That's why we write love stories together. that, that kind of sentiment that throws flows through us,
0: man. He really looks so peaceful. It's just a comfort to feel his heart beat. I mean, his bandages seem tranquil. His face is really very sweet. Whoa, just what the hell was that crap? Where did that come from? I felt my heart swell. I mean, I didn't sound sarcastic. That was weird. I'm not feeling well.
2: You both mentioned that this isn't your full-time gig. So you obviously you both have other things you do, 40 hours or 50 hours, as the case may be, a week. So when do you have time to, you know, be creative? Is it just after hours? Is it sleepless nights? Is it crazy weekends? <laughs> yep.
1: Uh, yes. <yeah. laughs> yes to all of them. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, and, and what ends up happening is, you know, I think, we both have varying degrees of tendency toward procrastination and I apologize for my neighbor's dog. But, uh, what, what ends up happening ultimately is we we'll, we have, we always have some kind of deadline, whether it's, it's a reading or a draft or a, a what have you. So like we just finished the draft, um, for 3d theatricals and the notes that TJ had given us. And, and that really was collectively between the two of us, hundreds of hours, um, yeah. of work. And, uh, it's just we, we had to have it done by mid late October because we're gonna have the table read at the end of this month and then there's gonna be the reading for the board of directors in the spring and you just know that there are these benchmarks and and you just do it.
3: <laughs> yeah. It eventually happens. Your <laughs> blood, sweat,
1: and tears. But you know, the you, you, you hope that, you know, one day the show gets produced and um, maybe, you know, maybe good things happen.
2: <laughs> okay so now you have the script everything is ready to go and you're gonna get ready for the first reading thoughts before you go into it
3: oh gosh i oh <laughs> this is where uh I, I guess a lot of the hysteria comes in <laughs> um, <laughs> which which i i am also nowhere near immune from but uh, uh i don't know i generally most concerned about it just connecting and 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 people getting what we get out of it or, or what, what we want them to get out of it. Usually what, going into a reading like that, I'm, I'm, I, I usually watch the audience much more than I'm watching what's actually happening on stage, which I like, you know, saying it out loud, maybe that, that sounds like it's doing a disservice to all of our actors who've all been amazing and done amazing work, but I'm usually kind of more, more just seeing what, how are people reacting and, are are they making noises? Are, are they like gasping? Are they are they doing stuff like that? So that's usually what I'm on edge, kind of kind of waiting and hoping for.
1: There's so much that goes into the reading. You know, it's um, uh, I I make all these. I mean, you, you you've seen all my meticulous, irritating emails, but um, for every single actor, for every single stave, I make these MP3s for them to learn their melodies, and then I make a video that's kind of like follow the bouncing ball for them to look at their melodies. Usually in these readings, and I think what's going to be interesting as we evolve and go forward, most of what we've done have been equities, 29-hour stage readings, which means, you know, we get 29 hours or less of rehearsal, and that includes the time for performing. So we might actually only have like 20 hours of rehearsal. Um, So I spend a lot of it going on pins kind of sitting on pins and needles going is the song going to be sung correctly not because we don't have phenomenal actors we have phenomenal actors and i kind of want to go on and on about that but you know there's there's only so much you can do in a given amount of time so it's a bit of a high wire act so i'm just kind of holding my breath um hoping the material comes across and uh, i think it'll be a whole lot of fun when we get more than 20 hours of rehearsal
2: so you read your your first stage reading, and then you have to go right back to work. What's your first meeting like after that first reading?
1: Well, I think
3: gosh, gosh, coming coming back to that that actual first one. I think correct me if I'm wrong, did we have like a couple readings the first time around, like 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 two performances, or was it just the one? I thought we had a couple. but I think, but, we, but, had, I think we had two. yeah, I think we we kind of gave ourselves ample time to just like crash. Like we yeah. literally were like, let's budget three days to not talk about this with each other. Yeah. <laughs> Beside the text of like you know, the occasional text of like good job, buddy. But like I think we just we we gave ourselves a lot of time to really sit and process. And then um we after that we kinda we thought about like uh we I, I believe we we just sat down and went through a lot of the feedback that that we'd received from from um the workshop and and even from audience members. And um, I don't know. I, w- I would say it was probably only a couple days after that that we kind of were like, "All right, let's get let's get cracking on the next uh, next revision."
1: Yeah, I mean, I think after the for me after the reading, there's usually a, a huge sense of relief. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of like we we did the high wire act and they got all the way across the wire. Like we,
2: yeah. we've
1: never had a reading where I felt like it went really badly. You know, I felt like I feel like every single reading. We've gotten so lucky with all of our actors that could pull it off. I mean, the very, very first reading with Ken Allen Neely and Matt Borer and Dana Shaw and um, all the way through everybody we've ever gotten to work with. You know, the, the last couple of readings, we haven't talked about the amazing Christy Brook or Natalie Holt or Alyssa yeah. Rupert or, or Nikki Coxbell or I, will, I want to go down the list and Melvin Batang and... Uh <laughs> Gonzalez and I'm gonna get in trouble because I'm not naming people, but um we've had so many, so many amazing actors just show up and kill it. That usually after the reading's done, I just kinda of feel like wow, that was amazing and how did we get away with this? But yeah, like David said, about three days later then we're, you know, nose back to the grindstone because because uh, we got we got high hopes. <laughs> I'm
0: a man in my prime. Holy crap! This could work. Then I will rule this school. Turning IQ into muscle, making all these cretins drool. With my genius exposed for all the world to see. Their mouths agape at my glory as the spotlight shines on me.
2: Thank you for listening to part one of our series on Invisible the Musical. Tune in next time where we will discuss with the Davids how they brought the script to the stage. The
0: whole school will stare Then you'll see I'm the stud You thought Chetwick was You'll see I was never that nerd You'll see my name lit up at the You'll see how I get the last word. You'll see.